0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Thank you for joining um, us here today. Uh, Also joining us on the program, Rosemary Garland-Thompson. Rosemary is a professor of English and bioethics at Emory. She has been called a thought leader in disability studies, and I'm a thought leader. What is that? That's like, like... It's like if you're young, then that's like she's like an influencer in disability studies, but with less expensive clothing. Uh, So she is the co-editor of About Us, essays from the New York Times about disability by people with disabilities. And she is someone who is simultaneously committed to seeing people as whole entities and not defined by their disabilities as a person and on a condition and also to disability as a community. So some of that brings up the same contradictions we wrestle with all the time in genetic counseling. And maybe it has uh, maybe maybe Rosemary has something to say about that. So
1: Rosemary, hi, and
0: welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much, Laura. I'm delighted to be with you. Great.
0: So Rosemary I was thinking just to start off with, you were born with a rare genetic condition. In our experience, rare genetic conditions often mean, like, long diagnostic odysseys. Was that was that true for you?
1: Well, when you began the program and introduced me uh, and suggested that a thought leader might be a young person, I do want to say that um, I'm actually not at all a young person. Oh no, I didn't say it was a young person. person. I was (laughs) translating
0: that to young person ease. You know, so we pick up that.
1: That demographic. I see. (laughs) Well, thought leader is a relatively new um, and, in that sense, uh, of a uh, younger generation kind of concept. But the important thing about my age um, or my generation, if you will, um, is that um, I've been teaching and studying. And building this field that we call now critical disability studies uh, for about 20 years in in the university. And we can talk a little bit about how that affects um, the kind of work I'm trying to do now as a bioethicist. But really the important thing about my own age or generation, if you will, is that I was born with a congenital disability before the civil and human rights movements of the mid-20th century changed everything about what it meant to be and to live as a person with a disability. So in that sense, I have lived and experienced being a disabled person on both sides of that really important divide in how we think about what it means to be disabled and quality of life in terms of people with disabilities. There are huge differences about what it, what it meant to live with the disability before, let's say 1975. I'm just going to, I'm just going to use that time uh, when legislation and and practices and institutions began to recognize that people with disabilities were being excluded from rights and privileges and public spaces and opportunities that non-disabled people were generally not excluded from. So that's a huge historical break. And that has a lot to do with uh, my own work and my own life. So, uh, When I was born with this, what I call unusual arms, which might have been called deformity or a, uh, it wasn't understood as a congenital, as a congenital genetic condition. It was simply understood as some kind of a um, birth anomaly. And so I wasn't medicalized very fully. Uh, when I was a young child, although I did have a number of orthopedic and and what I would call now normalizing surgeries, uh, which is very common, of course, for people who are born with um, apparent disabilities of some kind. Um, And those didn't benefit me particularly, but they certainly did shape me in both senses um, in terms of how I encountered and lived in the world and did the work that I was going to do. But I also didn't understand myself as being a disabled person because there was no identity group to belong to at that point. At least for me, before about 1980, I wasn't aware that there was a disability community, that there was a disability rights movement, that there was a way to imagine oneself as having political equality and working towards social justice as a person with a disability. So I had, of course, known and understood myself as someone with a medical condition or someone with uh, limb differences. There were a whole bunch of different ways of talking about the way my body was shaped, but I went through the world not identifying particularly as a person with a disability, which is not uncommon, of course, because most people who acquire disabilities early on in life are not in families that have those same disabilities, and this is one of the things that differentiates disability as a social identity from um, social identities such as racial identities or even gender identity. And so I was very isolated from that. However, I had, of course, gone through the mid 20th century developments of the women's movement and the black civil rights movement and was very much attuned to those Changes in the society and the logics of those changes and what those movements had done to make life different for. So what what do you feel uh, is the same
0: in the disability community as like a civil rights movement? And what do you feel is fundamentally different?
1: What is the same is the logic of. Being included, the logic of being in a group that has been structurally and attitudinally disenfranchised or excluded or even persecuted um, as a result of some aspect of one's um, essential bodily yeah, characteristics. Yeah,
0: so you're a yeah, professor at you're a professor at Emory. Tell me something, did you did you come to be an English professor? You were because you were doing disability studies and English was the home that they found or were you an English professor who ended up in this area of disability studies, which which way did that go? Uh
1: no, I Was an English professor because I had been an English teacher in high schools and junior high schools, because I had been an English major in college, which was something I did because when I was in school, English or reading or talking was one of the few things that I could really do well. And I did get the opportunity to go to school, and a lot of disabled people didn't get the opportunity to go to school, uh, or they were only uh, able to go to segregated schools. Uh, But because I could get into the classroom door, I did go to public schools. Now, I didn't go to very good public schools, but I nonetheless went to public schools. But there was much that I was excluded from in public schools uh, because of my disability. But there was also no concept of accommodation or um, appropriate education for people with disabilities. So whatever it was that I couldn't do, I just didn't do. So for example, in recess and and gym, uh, I often simply just stood on the sidelines um, and waited. Uh, But I could talk uh, pretty effectively, and I could think pretty effectively. So English or Reading literature, stories, narrative was something that um, appealed to me and something that I could do well in. So I understood that I needed to have a job, and that that was a good job to have, to be a teacher, to be an English teacher. Yeah, that was
0: what I wanted to do at one point in time, actually. Yeah, I thought, great job. So you were there, and you could see where you would, as you talked about there being sort of a political will, to define society's obligations to create access for people with disabilities across the line. There was also an an academic movement towards examining the idea, the concept of disability and what that meant and philosophically how we should be responding to it. And I think, you know, so obviously you've been a part of the movement of creating that branch of study, right? Um, yes. I have a question for you, something that I think about a lot, which is that do you find it difficult to speak for people with disabilities at, and make generalizations? Because one of the things that keep I feel like I keep getting smacked with at work in terms of thinking about disabilities is how significant the particularities are. And how difficult it is to generalize. And, you know, we were having a discussion in class the other day, and we're talking about whether something was, which we'll get to, more of identity or more of a disability or more of medical. And and someone was saying, well, it would depend on, in this particular case, were you born with it or was it something that happened later in life? And those would be very different experiences, right? And that's even with the same conditions. So I... I'm always reminding myself of how hard it is to generalize and how in terms of people's lives, the details turn out to be extremely significant, right, from thing to thing. So I'm just asking you about that problem from an academic point of view.
1: I learned about disability studies. Um, I learned about disability justice I learned about disability history through women's history, women's studies, as we used to call it, feminism. And one of the things I learned, of course, is that these identity categories, whether it is woman or black or African-American or disabled, are categories that have a history, categories that have a logic, and that categories, they are categories that are not essential, and they are categories that also are very contested within these particular groups. So one of the things we saw in the early women's movement is that there was probably more diversity of experience, of opinion amongst the group of people who understood themselves and were understood as women, as there would have been between people understood as women and people understood as men. So that there's great diversity of experience and understanding and opinion within any particular social group. And so I came to understand that People with disabilities were, as we say in sociology sometimes, a socially constructed identity group. But that doesn't mean that those differences do not come together in some way, in some fundamental way that's meaningful in the social and in the political world. So I can be very tolerant of differences amongst people with disabilities or differences amongst lives lived with disability and to still understand that there is merit in understanding and in moving forward as a member of a particular identity group, especially of an identity group that has been historically excluded And that has worked together to benefit from new rights and understandings. The way this gets carried out most fully for me is in ways that I end up speaking with other people who are moving into the identity group of people with disabilities So because disability as an identity group, a socio-political group, if you will, is a very, very porous group, and it's also a relatively um, recent group um, in terms of the fact that, let's say, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which comes to us in 1990, Um, was a latecomer onto the scene of civil and human rights. We were thinking about and acting on uh, women's rights and the black civil rights movement in the United States and elsewhere, you know, in the very early 1960s. So it isn't that there wasn't a disability rights movement at that time. It's that it didn't come into full... Uh, flourishing really until quite a bit later and because so many people don't identify as being disabled or as having a disability because it's still very highly stigmatized and because people move in and out of that category uh, they come into that category in different ways it's not it's not understood as so clearly a coherent group as say women or people of color or African Americans. And so people are very nervous, reasonably so, about entering into the group, about claiming the identity. There are not very many incentives to identify as disabled. But what I have found is that people need to do that identification When they run up against barriers, when they run up against exclusions, when they discover that they are being refused access, when they discover that they need to ask for an accommodation in order to carry out their life plans in a fair and equitable way. And so that's when people need to know that they can identify as disabled. And one way to identify as disabled is to simply request fair and reasonable accommodations in the institutions in which they work. And those are the kinds of people or the kinds of situations that I very often run into.
0: Yeah, yeah, it just gets very complicated, right? Because there are two almost... Contrary um, ways in which someone could say, um, he, "I would like to, I would like to advocate on behalf of people with disabilities, both genuine and both reasonable." One is to say, "People with disabilities um, are the same as everybody else; they merely have these physical differences, and if given the chance, you know, if if given ways to overcome their obstacles to access, they can function." as a member of society in the same way, and therefore they should be given that access. I'm being general, right? But like sort of reasons in which to give people access. And then there's a whole other line of thought, which is also very, like has a lot of value to it, which is to say people with disabilities are unique and add something to society that would be lost if they weren't there. Um, so we don't want to lose that. And one is sort of a fix this problem, create access would, would be what comes up from our point of view, from a medical point of view of like, okay, our part in that would be like, all right, that's disability as a problem. There's a person with a problem. They're not the, you know, like, how do we help? And the other is sort of. Disability as identity, where it's almost offensive to say this is a problem we need to fix and and so it it gets at this complicated relationship between disability as identity and disability as a problem and 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 difference you know is it is it a difference or a disability I guess is what I'm trying to say, and do you find that a useful construct
1: yes exactly and i've I came to disability uh, culture, disability politics, disability awareness, through as I've suggested, feminism and the women's movement, and you know, women are fifty two percent of the population. so when we were talking about sex and gender, it was it was easier and clearer to think through how that might work. Uh, It's more complicated, I think, in some ways with disability, but we had similar conversations as many of, as you know, and many of your listeners know, about what it meant to be a woman, whether we women wanted to have a separate culture. Uh, whether it was appropriate for women to take on roles that men had had in the interest of equality and access, or whether women should continue to build and live in uh, a kind of separatist culture, a woman's culture. You know, I've never been a separatist, but if, if,
0: if, if men elect Donald Trump two weeks from now, then I might change my mind. Cause women are certainly not electing that guy. So like, I'm in a little bit of a moment here. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to say, like I I could rethink the whole separatist business. If you guys, if you guys screw this up anyway, I'm sorry, please do. Well, but
1: (laughs) I think it, no, I mean, your point is very well made that it becomes, let's talk about women for a minute. It becomes very difficult to generalize about women Um, When we, I mean, I'm with you in, but nonetheless, you know, there's a long literature, uh, philosophers, people like Virginia Woolf wrote about uh, what was understood as, you know, a kind of essential feminine way of being that women were more peaceful, that women were uh, more relational, that women uh, were more humane than men. And although we may want to believe those essential differences, um, every day we find ourselves having to confront these beliefs that we might want to have about essential difference. So... I think a lot about that in relation to the disability community because I very often talk with people who say things like I don't I don't want to be identified. I may use a wheelchair, but I'm not disabled. And what I want to say is we 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 have the right to structure our own relationship with any of these identity groups. But what matters the most is that we understand the logic of a civil and human rights understanding of these identities. In other words, it is now against the law to discriminate against people on the basis of sex, of race. Of disability and other things. But let me just talk about that. And to be able to say this is what matters or people with disabilities can request reasonable accommodations. People with disabilities can bring suits against people and institutions that discriminate against them. It's important for people to understand that regardless of what other position they may take in relation to their own healthcare decisions or their own identification so
0: let me ask you let me ask so you about some questions that are specifically you know important to a lot of my audience that are genetic counselors or in genetics so yes. we have this we have this uh, i don't know type rope that we walk all the time of wanting to be, and I say this, like I know a lot of genetic counselors, and I tell you from the heart, they wanna be advocates for people with disabilities. And their work in adult genetics and so on, and in in, in pediatrics, it brings them into the orbit of many people with many and many families who are struggling with all sorts of different types of differences, you know? and at the same time, we are, as a field, quite committed as a part of reproductive medicine to offering people the chance to have what we would then define as healthy babies, which gives them the option to choose against many types of differences or or what would manifest itself as disabilities. Um, is it possible in your mind to do both like like is prenatal screening in and of itself offensive to people with disabilities? What do you think?
1: I don't think that the question uh, of whether prenatal screening is offensive to people with disabilities is exactly the right question. You began, of course, with exactly the both political and ethical dilemma that genetic counseling and genetics and medicine in general, certainly reproductive medicine, faces now. And that is this enormous collision. And of course, liberal democracies have a lot of collisions. But this is a collision between the ethical and political, two ethical and political principles. And that is the principle of autonomy, or what we call freedom of choice, uh, that is essential for all citizens in liberal democracies, modern liberal democracies. And at the same time, we have the other commitment that liberal democracies or liberal modern orders all have, and that is to equality for all people, regardless of their differences. And these come right into collision in genetic counseling all the time in the way that you describe it. So on the one hand, every woman uh, or every family, but let me just say every woman who is pregnant and in the reproductive environment is how I like to call it because it's you know it's it's an entire environment that that a woman who is having a baby or pregnant passes through and she should absolutely have the autonomy to know everything that she can know all of the information That she might be able to gain that this process might give her in order to make to exercise her reproductive liberty, to to make these free informed choices about not just the medical situation of having a baby, but the you know, the life choices of making a family. We should all have. The right to make the family that we want to have, just as we have the right to make many other decisions that we've had in our lives. That comes up against the problem of creating a world that has certain kinds of people eliminated from it on the basis of some sort of understanding that they are inferior or that they will be burdens on the society
0: yeah, or I on think, a family. I think so it's very hard. How right? do you square those? Yeah, how do you yeah. square right? those, be respectful? Yeah. I mean, I, right? you know, I I think that... that uh, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to get to this question of, of even even if you don't get near to elimination, or even if there are, there are many types of disability, right? So it could be some, some somebody asked me uh, at a party because like this is a fun party conversation, of course. What would really be wrong with there being no Down syndrome? And right. it threw me a bit. Well, what? How would you answer that? What would really be wrong with there being no Down syndrome? I'll tell you afterwards what I ended up with because I I changed my answer a bit.
1: Well, I think it would be wrong uh, for us as a society, and we already have done this, um, and I don't mean just the United States. I mean, uh, let me call it the rich nations of the world in general. Um, I think it would be wrong because... The human variations and characteristics that we call Down syndrome are regularly occurring human variations that are generally compatible with life. So when we have conversations about what kinds of diseases or what kinds of conditions we should, or we have a moral obligation to eliminate which are serious, let's say. This is one of the words that is used very often in conversations about genetic testing and also uh, using genetic editing. And we can talk more about that later if you'd like. But the the characteristics that count as serious are characteristics such as incompatible with life or um, having extraordinarily low quality of life. And if you take something like Down syndrome... Um, the people with that, those characteristics, can and do have very high qualities of life.
0: Yeah, I think I'd like you to go into this a little bit more because I think this
1: yeah. this,
0: this this getting into the you know what is serious and what are more. And, and I think one of the problems we have right. is that Down syndrome is a terrible poster child for genetic testing, even though it is the thing we test for and we talk about the most because.
1: Right. Well, because it was the it was the first one that that was tested for, you know, in the 1960s. That's one reason is that we began with that. Well, it's a a, a clear
0: case. It's a clear case of looking for your keys under the under the street lamp is what it is. Like <laughs> Nobody ever sort of said, Down syndrome's the worst thing that could happen to a human. Oh. So let's test for that first. That That's wasn't right. the way it happened. It was like, well, we can see this. Exactly. We know what that looks like, and right. common enough to be able to find it so that it's sort well, of financially we know what
1: sense. it looks like in lots of ways is the point no no i mean we, we know, know what, what
0: it looks like on the chromosomal studies like we well, could I actually know, but physically well we
1: also say. know what it looks like in the world right in the sense that down syndrome is a particular it has a particular set of characteristics physical right. visible legible characteristics that are highly stigmatized so, part of the appearance and part of what we think of as cognitive uh, disability that tend to be associated with Down syndrome all come together to form a figure of a kind of person that has been historically very highly stigmatized
0: mm-hmm. but but anybody that you know that works in well in any medical field to tell you that could rattle off a, a series of ten or twenty th- conditions that are that are that are way way worse uh way oh, way worse and more devastating and we should much more obviously test for it and I mean I think you sort of so you sort of drew a line that's a fairly straight easy line to draw it's harder to now, to, to, to to that that defines I think a section you know things that are life very life-limiting very severe you know mm-hmm. um yes, there's people that think that nothing is ever a reason for prenatal screening. And, and, but, but anybody that agrees that any prenatal screening is appropriate is, is going to agree with you that like that segment is, 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 is the best target, right? Um, how far out do do we go before you start to infringe on like? Oh, now you're simply saying that some forms of life aren't worth living when they're obviously you know in the normal spectrum of life. Would, um, like, and, and I think some people would look at it and say, "Well, I can deal with certain physical challenges, but cognitive issues." You know, uh, other people, you know, and so you it's, it when you actually start to try and put. Terms on this. It gets so
1: hard. It gets very hard. And it is hard. Part of it is the entire context of a system that identifies human traits as disease. And that that itself is an oversimplification. So one of the problems with the whole apparatus or the whole environment of testing is that if we simply count everything that counts as a disease as something that we should consider in terms of testing, and thus in terms of selecting against, then we're not really doing a very good job of honoring the kinds of ethical and political commitments that we have to human equality. And that tends to not be very clear in terms of what we think of as disability identity, it becomes a lot more clear if we start applying these principles of reproductive liberty um, and choice and uh, if we think of other kinds of traits. For example, if you say to people in general, we're going to test to see if your... um, prospective child, your, your future person, whether it's an embryo, whether it's a fetus, we're going to test um, to see if it has blue eyes or brown eyes. Uh, we're going to test to see about skin pigmentation. We're going to test to see about sex. And then you can choose whether these are conditions that are acceptable to you and your family um, as ways of being in the world that you find livable. This, people understand the logic of what's wrong with that. When the traits are identified as diseases, then it has a, a completely different valence, I think, for people. mm mm-hmm. And so one way, of course, to address this would be to attempt to have different narratives of life that tend to mitigate the pathological narratives that go along with these identified conditions. Down syndrome is simply, you know, the most vivid one because, you as you say, I mean, it's literally a poster child, um, and of course, the irony is there has never been a time in all of human history, or a place in all of human history, uh, where it where you can have a better quality of life if you have Down syndrome or if you have a disability of almost any kind. So, so what what, what you're just describing this is the time. Yeah. when we are. Uh, really editing out uh, at, at kind of every level um, these different
0: kinds of people. It, it, it's it, people understand what you were saying about the traits versus what you call a narrative of disability, or I don't remember exactly how you said it, but like every poll anybody takes about what is an acceptable use of genetic technology and reproduction, people usually articulate, like 75% of respondents, an enormous amount of agreement given the way the world is, usually say, oh, I know what they should do. They should not select four traits, but they can select against disease. And so that logical right. framework makes sense to people, and frankly it makes sense to me. The problem is that – um there's when you actually look, the words you used before, porous, the borders here are way more porous than people like to believe. And Down syndrome is a great example because there's a lot of what's seen as disability, which is certainly in the spectrum of normal life. And, um, you know, as a person, an individual, it's a part of a family. Uh, you know, people will tell you that. The, these kids and the adults that they have good quality of life. They report having a good quality of life. Their family members report feeling, you know, like there there isn't um, a crying need according to some of those metrics. But also, and I would be remiss not to point this out, there are some genuine, I think anyone would define as disease things associated also with Down syndrome. They have higher rates of, uh heart structural heart problems they get leukemia they have r- early onset alzheimers and there's some real health issues like my right i have a close friend who had a child with down syndrome who died as a toddler because of her heart disease and they really it's irrelevant to them that their kid had cognitive delays as far as they were concerned, they lost a child from heart disease. And it, you know, so they didn't want to have to go through this again. And it wasn't, you know, so like I'm saying is in both directions, it's porous. And right. the idea that we can draw this line, you know, and I've been discussing this issue for 20 years and I don't have an answer of like, is there a standard we could set that would protect us as a profession from doing the wrong thing, but also allow us as a profession to be serving people.
1: I think one of the things that we need to do in terms of policy and practice is significantly limit the available tests, these tests to identify risk or to identify certain traits Because we don't know what kind of a life anybody will have. And one of the problems with testing for what I call ways of being in the world, but we could call it conditions that we think of as disabilities, is that it targets certain human traits as disadvantages in a way that doesn't really predict what a life will be. Now, certainly, it's terrible that these people lost their child early on to a condition that, a health condition that was associated with Down syndrome. But if you, if you turn that, if you roll that back and say to them, would you not have wanted to have that person in your life? Would you have wished to not have them, to not have that person. Um, I think that's the kind of conversation that we want to have. The other part of it is when we take a narrative like that and we say this, this person died young because this person had this condition that goes along with the genetic Profile of Down syndrome, and therefore, we want to stop that possibility ahead. What that does is that it creates this false narrative that somebody brought into the world with a clean genetic profile is going to have a life free of suffering and free of pain and is going to have a really good life because they have been like washed clean of all of the characteristics that we think cause suffering or ill health. And that's where we get into a more philosophical rather than a medical approach to what it means to be human, we just can't predict ahead what a life will be. And for us to assume that a good life will flow from a, from a person or to a person who has been like I said, genetically kind of cleansed is is an ethical mistake. And all we need to do is look for a minute at the actual lived lives, the actual families, the actual human relationships that people have uh, with people with disabilities, and to look at the actual lived lives of people who come into the world supposedly non-disabled. And we see immediately the flaw of the logic that says if we can just find these liabilities and and remove them from the human condition ahead of time, then... we will have no human suffering and that's the mistake that is built into the kinds of assumptions about life and people that all of this testing all of this selection i think creates well you know what rosemary that
0: could either be the very beginning of a conversation or the very end. And I think in this <laughs> case, it's going to be the very end. I'm giving you the, the last and final word on that. And that was like beautifully said. So it feels like, and we are well over time. We could either stop now or go on forever. So I think I'm going to say we're going to stop. And I'm going to say now, thank you. That makes sense to me. <laughs> thank you so much. For this conversation, you are
1: thank you very much, Laura. It's a pleasure, and I very much appreciate your work, this podcast, everything you do, and I thank you for including uh, this conversation.
0: Yeah, well, um, um, thanks,
1: thanks again, and uh, to my audience,
0: please, as usual, go to the website, follow the podcast, follow me on Twitter at Laura Hersher, and take care, stay safe, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks.